makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Greetings and good day, my relatives. Shake your hands with good hands or good feelings in my heart. It's good day. It's a good day for all of us to be here. And this is First Voices Radio. I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. This is an all-native produced, all-native hosted uh, First Voices Radio. Now in its 29th year. Of broadcasting, and Liz Hill is First Voices Radio's producer. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Radio, First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archives. And you can hear us internationally on Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. Well, our first guest is Corinna Gold, who is part of the Ohlone, born and raised in Oakland, California. And also we do have on the line Toby McLeod, who has been there for her as a, as a film journalist and has accompanied Corinna in the, the decades-long fight, I suppose. And I'd like to bring both of them up. First of all, Corinna, I'd like to thank you and, and welcome this morning to First Voices Radio. Oh, thank you so much. Good to be here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, the Ohlone Nation, it was almost the same thing, a small piece of land that West Berkeley seemed not to, uh, it was oversight. They didn't want to hear that there were still Native people there. This was about a decade ago. But now the new action of the California Court of Appeal for the first district will hear arguments, has heard arguments actually, and I'm wondering what that would be for you. And would you give us a background on the West Berkeley Shell Mound? 
Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, about a decade ago almost, we had taken over a site in uh, what's called Glen Cove Vallejo. Um, and then about five years after that, we began this fight to save the oldest shell mound along the bay, the West Berkeley Shell Mound, which is about half, half, uh, about 20 minute drive from the site that we had taken over um, in a visual um, in April of 2011. Uh, the West Berkeley Shell Mound is the oldest of shell mounds, and shell mounds, if folks don't know about them, are our burial sites um, where our villages are, and we always lived along the waters where fresh water met salt water, and this particular shell mound is a part of our cosmology and talks and uh, really teaches us about uh, the ways that we connect to our western gate where our ancestors go out. And folks that may know a little bit about the Bay Area, um, this particular shell mound and village site um, connects us to that western gate uh, via Alcatraz Island. And uh, many people may know that Alcatraz Island was taken over um, uh, in the 1960s, the late 1960s. This Alcatraz Island um, is a place where our ancestors rest for four days while we do ceremony as they pass over. And as the sun goes down on the fourth day, our ancestors leave through the Western Gate, where many people now think of as the Golden Gate, where the Golden Gate Bridge is. And so this is an important site that uh, we have, as uh, Lashawn Ohlone people, been praying at for, you know, since the beginning of time. It's a part of uh, who we are. And five years ago, there was a developer in um, Berkeley that wanted to put condominiums and big box shopping on top of it, and we were able to show up um, in hundreds um, to stop this development from going through. And um, as we were winning this this battle in the zoning boards and the Landmarks Commission, because this site had been landmarked by the city of Berkeley for over 20 years prior to this fight, and um, this, they decided to use a new law that was put in place in California called SB 35, and SB 35 allows the developers to get a ministerial permit used to build without going through public um, process. And we, um, alongside of the city of Berkeley, uh, joined in a lawsuit to um, to say no to this. We won in lower court, um, and it was a beautiful win for the Shell Mound. The judge actually likened the Shell Mound to many ruined um, places around uh, historical sites around the world. And we just went in, to, uh, heard arguments uh, about a month ago um, from the the second court, and we're waiting to hear back what um, what that looks like. In the meantime, the developers have fenced off the sacred site, uh, six foot fences with barbed wire over the top, and uh, many uh, you know cameras around, twenty four hour surveillance. We have been going to the site with hundreds of people throughout the um, time and praying, laying down prayers from people from all walks of life, um, spiritual leaders from um, Mauna Kea and from the Amazon and from Oak Flats have come and prayed with us. People from the uh, the chief of the Wintu have come and prayed at the site with us. And so this site um, has also brought people from all different faiths to um, pray and to really be there with us to protect that site. Now, Corinna Gold, the 2.2-acre 2, 2 
paved parking lot. People can think, imagine that. It's like 2.2 acres. It's a fairly small piece of land, but what is contained, which hides the millennia of, of your people's history, the Ohlone, underneath that, as well as other people, such as the Spanish and Mexican and actually Americans that are buried underneath that surface there. But then you have been working tirelessly to protect over 400, actually actually 425 shell mounds that ring San Francisco Bay. So wh- why does this come importantly into play right now? Well, you know, throughout the last few hundred years of development in the Bay Area, many of our shell mounds are leveled. And, you know, some of them were as tall as 60 feet high at one time. And we find our shell mounds underneath buildings, parking lots, railroad tracks, uh, malls, and schools and bars. Um, but that doesn't make that de- make them any less sacred. Um, you know, there are now laws in effect that allow the tribe to speak on behalf of our sacred sites to be in consultation with cities and counties um, when we know that a, a, a site might be destroyed uh, because of development. And those were those laws weren't in place when development was first happening in the Bay Area. Um, and so it's you know we've been trying to save these. Up until about 20 years ago, no one in the Bay Area knew what a shell mound was. Unless you were an archaeologist or an anthropology student, it wasn't talked about. You weren't taught about it in school. And it was so it was an erasure of our people. Even though we're still here, we have an unbroken tie to our lands, um, we've been erased. And so it's been important to do this work to bring around education to people that have moved into our territory because our territory has been really urbanized. Um, and so um, it's important for us to talk about the history and to to really engage the public with the knowledge that the tribe still remains here. And it's uh, that these places that were held important to our ancestors are still important to us today. When you talk about the 11 most endangered historic sites in America, where the, the Berkeley, Berkeley City landmarks since 2000, and I'm thinking ahead what does that mean as a solution? Would there be, uh, you know, as it's now, it's it's cordoned off by by do not enter signs and it's under study. Does that mean that in the end, eventually, will will it become a park or will revert back to the ownership of the Ohlone people? You know, we, the for this entire time that we've been trying to get the developers to to back off of of um, this idea of putting of destroying what's left of our mound and village site underneath the uh, pavement. It's important to understand that this 2.2 acres of land has never been built upon, really. And that's pretty amazing in um urban area like Berkeley or the Bay Area. But we know as Indigenous people, when special places like this have been virtually undisturbed um, underneath the land, that um, this is a place of real power and it needs to be protected in, in a way. Um, we hope to get um, the, the, the um, developer to decide to not do the development. It, you know, this entire time we were looking for someone, you know, for them to also become a willing seller. We can't uh, imagine creating a place of uh, cultural uh, significance there to invite the public to learn about Ohlone place, uh, Ohlone people, not just in the past, but currently. Um, we can't do that unless we have someone that's willing to, to sell that land to us back. So we are actually having to buy back our sacred site 
Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the hope. The prayer is that the, that the site becomes available for us to take care of again, as we have for thousands of years. I'd like to bring in your comrade here, Christopher Toby McLeod, who's been project, uh, excuse me, project director of the Sacred Land Film Project since 84. And Toby's also released in light of reverence 2001 and standing on sacred ground in 2013, which aired on PBS. Toby, you've been there with Corinna since uh, practically beginning and covering uh, the sacred shell mounds. And uh, what what do you see as far as being an ally is concerned? Any progress that's going on with the city and the state? Well, thanks, Tio Kassin. It's great to be with you. Um, you know, watching Karina's leadership and uh, the effect that she has on the city leaders of Berkeley and also people from around the world who come to pray at the Shell Mound site. It's been, it's just been a real honor to be able to work with Karina. I, I sort of joked five years ago when this started that I used, I just ran around the world for 20 years trying to help tell stories about the importance of sacred places. And, and here now I feel blessed to have, uh, even though it's a gruesome struggle against a private property owning landowner it's it's a sa- a true sacred site struggle right here in my hometown and you know i going around the world you notice that people build mounds they build pyramids in egypt or the mayans in tikal and this human impulse to to bury the dead and have ceremonies of of honoring um this west berkeley shell mound site was for me was a classic as Karina described it, it's aligned with Alcatraz and this amazing opening that the sun sets in to the west, and there's fresh water was flowing into the bay, and then people found the powerful place that gives life and then erected this mound and did ceremony there for thousands of years. So it's a classic sacred site in the sense that it's it's a place of power and then ceremony and love just increase that power over thousands of years. And, um, you know, the feeling I have being there with Karina and the people who come to pray there is just the feeling of, of the presence of those ancestors who, you know, Karina wakes up in the morning in the place where her people have been living for thousands of years. And you can really feel the presence of that history at that site. So it's, it's motivated a lot of people to try to protect it. And we're still right in the middle of the battle, and it's it's unclear how it's going to turn out. But Karina keeps saying, you know, trust the ancestors. You can feel the power of of the of the support and love, and and uh, it's an honor to be part of the of this struggle. And Karina, when when I look at your your bio, it talks about, and I've read about this indigenous women led Sogorate uh, land trust. When I look at the site. Also, understanding the rematriation, which is, you know, is appropriate for this month's women's months in history, you know, and I'm thinking about the, the transformation and the, looking at the legacies of, of colonization and genocide and so forth. And when, when you look at uh, what is one of those possibilities of trust, uh, basically opportunities of giving back to the native peoples, I'm looking at the Shumi land tax. Can you? Describe what that invitation is all about. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, we started the Segorite Land Trust after the takeover of our sacred site in Vallejo uh, 10 years ago. And it's an urban indigenous women-led land trust and the importance of putting indigenous land back into indigenous hands. It's a, uh, you know, while we have been 
doing this work around preserving and protecting our sacred sites, our shell mounds, and our burials, um, we know that there are thousands of our ancestral remains that are in institutions in, around the Bay Area. And our prayer has been to bring our ancestors home and place them back in the land where they belong and to be able to have that connection again and bring back the ceremonies and songs. Um, what's problematic is that we are a non-federally recognized tribe in our own homelands. We are homeless. And if we were to get our, our ancestral remains returned, we had no land base to return them to. We're talking about like 9,000 ancestral remains and, and uh, funerary um, ceremonial objects that UC Berkeley alone holds. And so, um, you know, tens of thousands of our ancestral ancestors need to be returned back to the land. But how do we do that without a land base? And so the Segorite Land Trust is really gives us an opportunity to, um, to use that tool of a land trust to bring back uh, indigenous land so that we... Um, can stand in sovereignty on our homelands without having to worry about outside interference in ceremonial um, places going through red tape, that we have those places to do that at again. And so shumi, or shumi is, um, in our language, means a gift. And we ask people that live, work, or play in our homelands um, to pay an honorary tax to help us to bring these lands back to connect a uh, not only our people, but people that now live in our territory, back to our lands and our responsibilities, our sacred responsibilities to the land, the water, the ceremonies, and our environment. And um, and so Shumi, you can give it once, or you can give it, uh, you know, monthly donations. It's a nonprofit, um, but it's a way for us to work in reciprocity with each other um, in the territories that our ancestors have always been in. Now, Corinna, you also mentioned that there is no land to give it back to, so to speak. Um, but also, if you do get recognized by the federal government, doesn't that doesn't the requirement of degree of blood proof also come up? Is that the question also? Well, the question, the difference in with the um, you know getting federal recognition in our territory, California. Um, colonization happened much differently than happened on the East Coast this coming this way. You know, I always say that when we think about this, this young country being created, they were signing the um, Declaration of Independence in 1776 on the East Coast when the colonization from the Spanish was just beginning to happen over here on the West Coast. And so our colonization through the Spanish mission period, the Mexico and Rancho period, and finally the uh, almost, um, you know, the annihilation laws that were created when the United States got here to California um, uh, doesn't line up with the federal recognition policies that were created um, to get re-recognized. And so we can trace our ancestry back to first contact um, and uh, with documentation. But there are particular things that uh, the United States asked for in order to go forward with the federal recognition process. And there are hundreds of tribes that are trying to be federally recognized at this time. And with the federal government, you getting 1.5 recognized per year, if you're at the very end of this 187 um, tribal list, you won't get on that list. And so the work that I've been doing around preserving and protecting sacred sites is ancestral work, the work that 
Um, I believe that we were put here to do and that our ancestors recognize us and we recognize them and the miracles that have been created since we've been doing this work in the Bay Area um, is astronomical. And, you know, I think that it's important for people to get the federal recognition if they can. But when you're talking about tribes that have no resources um, to do that, that have to hire archaeologists and ethnologists and lawyers um, and to create the documentation that the United States government is requiring um, is sometimes a battle that um, we have to decide whether that's a priority in our lifetime or not. And for me, the, our priority is our tribal people and bringing them back to the land and the language and the ceremony and to uh, gather um, on our own homelands in the way that we're supposed to and to reconnect in those ways. And that doesn't require federal re- uh, recognition. It would nice, be nice if we could do that again. The federal government um, kind of swept away many California Native tribes um, uh, without going through due process. Our tribe was one of them. Winnemumwintu was another one of them. There were many California tribes that were just uh, unilaterally uh, swept away without a due process. And so it would be great if we could be re-recognized through that process without having to go through the bar. I have a question for both of you. I'll ask Toby first. Is uh, What can an ally like, like yourself and other people listening to this want to and are able to do in um, really acknowledging and helping support what Corinna and uh, the Ohlone are doing to to actually get the recognition, but also to protect those sacred sites. Yeah, thanks. The I mean, we you know we've done the normal create a website shellmound.org where people can go and learn about the struggle, see the maps of the history, and donate. I think this is you know it's expensive to have lawyers. Um, and so donations, I think, are right now one of the most important ways people can support Karina. The Shumi tax, people from all over the Bay Area should be contributing to the rematriation, as Karina calls it, of the area. Um, you know, it's just it's such a historically important moment right now to to actually bring about social justice by acknowledging the history, the genocide and actually beginning to give land back and give the money, unfortunately, that's required these days to buy the land back. So learning about Karina's struggle and the real history of California and the United States um, and being ready to answer the call. You know, there's a way to get on Karina's um, email list. And when a call goes out to show up at the site or, uh, to pray for the site, uh, it's really important to write a letter for an environmental impact report. All those have been the tools that we've been using uh, to try to help protect the site. But um, I think going to the website, Segorte Land Trust also has a website, and just learning more and being ready when the call goes out. And Corinna? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yes, we can always use uh, donations. Shumi helps us to do the work that we need to do, this important work. There's also a separate website, like Toby said, shellmound.org, um, which has beautiful uh, imagery and uh, ways to talk about this particular fight the sh- uh, with the West Berkeley Shellmound. And that one has a link specifically for our legal funds and other funds that we need. Right now, um, you know, we're... Um, it's really disturbing that we don't have access to our sacred site, you know. I think that um, that we need to be creative about it, and we're asking people that live in the Bay Area 
um, if you if you can go out to the Shell Mound, nineteen hundred Fourth Street, and to put a ribbon on the fence. Um, uh, that surrounds our sacred site. You know, we have to talk about what does this look like, the, you know, um, the 1978 law that, you know, the freedom, uh, the American Indian Freedom of Religious Act. It, this is prohibiting us from doing ceremony on our sacred site. Um, you know, um, call on folks to look at UNDRIP and what does that look like, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and how this... Um, this is an act of violence of keeping Native people out of their sacred places to pray. And in 2021, we have to do better. And so we are looking for, you know, our, our uh, friends, our allies and accomplices to do this work with us. We are a small tribe that needs the help of those living in our territories to do this work in a good way. Um, and we're asking you to pray with us, to put a ribbon on that fence, to acknowledge that this, uh, that this place needs to be, these fences need to come down. Karina Gold, um, who's Chocheno, I believe it is, and Karkin Ohlone, born and raised in Oakland, California, along with the Shell Mound Protection of Sacred Sites. You can go to shellmound.org. And Toby McLeod, Project Director of Sacred Land Film Projects since 1984. I'd like to thank you for both joining us here on First Voices Radio. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Teokasen. This is Teokasen Ghost Horse of First Voices Radio. My, my name again, as you say, in, in Lakota, it would be Teokasi Chatanzi Wikiapaha Michaje Oyate Tokahe Wichakie. And uh, I just wanted to say it that way to let you know that it is an indigenous led uh, land as, you know, Native people are actually asking you to, to really recognize this land, acknowledge that just a lot of this is unseated. It was just taken away, usually by might. White is might, might is white, or white is might, or whatever that's called. It's an illusion. So I'm sure the Ohlone will treat that land very, very well and not just put cement and metals and other things that turn into junk eventually. So we'll be right back with more of First Voices
Mary was my mother's mother and my sister too. There's rain in the river, there's a river running through. To the sea around these islands, crying tears of sorrow pain. There's rain in the river, there's a river in my veins. Mary, young as we may be, you know, the blood in you and me is as old as blood can be. Is as old as blood. Lines of memory through the markings on my hand. Ancient lines of living love awakening in this land. Saying, I am in this forest, in the city and the field. I am in the bounty, come on, know me as I yield. I am in the falcon, in the otter and the stone. I am in the turtle dove with nowhere left to go. And in the moment of blind madness, when Pushing her away I am in the lover And in the ear who hears her say Can we begin again? Oh baby it's me again I know you are so different to me But I love you just the same I love you just the same I love you just the same Let's begin again with Nick Mulvey, last week's guest here on First Voices Radio. 
My name is Tio Kazan, Ghost Tourist. Our next guest is an old-time guest, and Stephen Newcomb, who is a scholar, educator, author, journalist, film producer, and workshop leader, and facilitator is with us. He's internationally recognized for more than three decades of research for the origins of federal Indian law and international law dating back to the early days of Christendom, and most notably focused on the religious doctrine now known in history as the doctrine of Christian discovery and he's the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Discovery, that he also made the uh, documentary film, The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code, with uh, Sheldon Wolfchild, who is Dakota also, and Steve is also Shani Lanape. And I would like to welcome you this morning again, Steve, to First Voices Radio. Well, thanks for having me. The um, You know, we, we talked uh, over the years about... Johnson v. McIntosh and the ruling which is Supreme U.S. Supreme Court handed down in 1823. But you found some new words that just totally made sense after reading it hundreds, perhaps thousands of times that was, you know, in plain sight, but people just didn't see it. But you, you, you know, we, we discussed this a little bit the other day, and I'm wondering what that would be that would make total common sense to those, even scholars who kind of, did an oversight and really didn't see see it there. What would that be? Well, you're probably referring to the reference to Joseph Story, who was sitting on the Supreme Court at the time of the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling in 1823, and he published a book in 1833 entitled uh, Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. And at the opening of the book, he's examining the British claims or English claims of title in North America. And he recounts the information about the Vatican papal bulls of the 15th century, one in particular from May 4th, 1493. And he provides a footnote or a couple of them actually referencing the papal bull document of Pope Alexander VI. And he quotes Latin from that document in the footnote. So the Latin is ac barbare nationis deprimantur, meaning and barbarous nations be reduced, so meaning dominated. And then from there, he transitions into the next section, section six, and he begins that section by writing this principle then, which is then refers back to what he's just cited with the papal bull, that discovery gave title to the government by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made against all other European governments. Now, just take those 22 words, and what happened is that uh, after years and years uh, of studying the Johnson ruling and reading it hundreds of times and studying that book uh, by Joseph Story and looking over that section, suddenly one day my mind focused on those 22 words, which had no quotation marks around them, and there was no footnote indicating that those 22 words came from the Johnson ruling, yet there they were, verbatim, directly quoting the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling. So here's an admission by the by a member of the Supreme Court who was seated on the court at the time of the Johnson ruling, 10 years later revealing that the Latin language of the Vatican Papal Bull, talking about barbarous nations being reduced, uh, provides the basis for those 22 words in the Johnson ruling, and, and as I would contend for the entire Johnson versus McIntosh ruling itself. 
And one of the significant points about that is that the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling is really the cornerstone for property law in the United States and certainly for federal Indian law and policy. So you have everything that you see with regard to the ideas and arguments developed by the United States government traced back to the Vatican documents from the 15th century, and that's admitted fully by, by Joseph's story. When I think about the ideas that have been assumed thus far with that the Native nations are, in fact, those heathens and everything else that they're calling us, you know, the superior genius of the United States, of Europe, you're a Western or Occidental people, is that, in fact, that just simply because they're in a room, and this is kind of metaphorish, is that you simply, because they're in a room, that we immediately bow to that energy. Talk a little bit about that. Well, in the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling, Chief Justice Marshall has a sentence uh, in there where he states, their rights to complete sovereignty as independent nations were necessarily diminished by the original fundamental principle that discovery gave title to those who made it. But leading up to that sentence, he says, and he states also uh, that the character and religion of its inhabitants, meaning the continent's inhabitants, afforded an apology, which means created a justification for considering them as a people over whom the superior genius of Europe might claim an ascendancy. And when you look up the word ascendancy, it goes back to the idea of domination, uh, controlling influence, governing power, domination. That's in the actual definition of ascendancy in Webster's Third New International Dictionary. And so this idea that they are superior beings, beings of superior intelligence with a superior religion or religious orientation and have the right to claim a right of domination wherever they go, provided those are not Christians that are living there. That provides the basis for the reality system that is called the United States in relation to our, our nations and peoples. So as you, quite extraordinary. And it is, and, and as you may have explained it earlier, but the, the mental activity of the Christian Europeans also, that some of us deem the invaders, has all they have to do is refuse to accept that we actually are native nations that live freely. Could you explain right. that one? Yeah. Yeah. So that when, when, they, when the uh, Christian Europeans show up, what they do is they bring their mental world with them. And it's the idea that as soon as they bring their mental world to this continent, to this part of the globe, that the there's an assumption that all of the original nations and peoples living in that place become instantly obligated by the thoughts and ideas of the Christian Europeans to live subject to the thoughts and ideas of the Christian Europeans. So it's a circular logic, but all they have to do is reject the idea within their mental world, reject the idea or the right of our native nations to live a free existence, and then blame it on a principle. Because that sentence that I already quoted, Marshall says their rights to complete sovereignty as independent nations, meaning their free existence, was necessarily diminished, necessary to the enterprise that they're developing, by the original fundamental principle 
So he's blaming it on a principle, not saying we're just creating these ideas out of our brains and putting them down on paper. But the, he's claiming that that principle, and then he calls it a, an original fundamental principle as if they're the original and fundamental people to the con- in relation to the continent. And so by the original fundamental principle, the discovery gave title to those who made it, meaning to those who made the discovery and quote-unquote discovery because it's a place already inhabited. So the, the challenge for us, it's one thing to report on what Marshall wrote or what he said, but the challenge that we face, I believe, is to figure out what is our, our most powerful counter-argument. In other words, how are we to respond to these ideas that are in that court ruling? And furthermore, how do we help people to understand that these are simply thoughts and ideas that came out of the brains of the uh, most elite sector of the colonizing society, right? And they just made it up as they went and still continue to do so today. Well, here's an idea I think I have is like, since they were able to dominate, or at least they think they're dominating and that they're defining what freedom is, that when they define or they say that, uh, natives are free, living in a free existence. It would seem to me, and now follow me. This is that we, that they really don't know what being free is all about. So they have to to, um, I, I guess, design this reality system in a way that we are obligated or dependent on on their created reality reality and um, their thoughts and their language as we're speaking now, but that we are, as you would say, required to live subject to their thoughts and ideas and, you know, participate in that same, same uh, reality system. Right. Well, the, the assumption is that as soon as they show up, then the original nations, all of our nations and peoples are somehow obligated or bound by their thoughts and ideas of domination to live subject to their ideas of domination. But then when you search for the premise of that, what they'll do is take it back to documents written by popes and monarchs thousands of miles across the ocean and say that those are the basis for their authority, or they'll trace it back to the Bible and the Old Testament, the chosen people promised land narrative, and say it traces back to that. So it's up to us to develop the powerful, powerful counter arguments for example, first in time, first in right. Uh, our nations uh, are first in time, so we're therefore first in right. And then the next one is void when initiated. You cannot grant what you don't possess. Those documents that they issued were basically null and void because they had no rightful jurisdiction across the entire ocean or over places they didn't even know the location of. And then the last one is, uh, as I've stated before on your show, uh, by by Glenn Wasson, a Western Shoshone elder, anything that is wrong from the beginning can never be made right because it was wrong from its inception. And so part of the challenge that we have is to be able to develop these kinds of arguments and put them forward and to challenge this claim of a right of domination uh, over and against our nations and peoples. Now, I'm thinking about, yeah, there's morality behind all of this, but um, the majority of Americans in, in the United States and throughout the Western Hemisphere, those uh, ruling classes seem not to even give that the time of day 
um, the ideas that we're discussing here, even are, are so our, our nations are now being now are being colonized even more. So we're forgetting our own history. And it would seem that's the whole idea behind their uh, principle, I suppose, pretending that that's really <laughs> but has really been mentally invented, as you would say. And that's yeah. that's the, the in unreality that we are believing this illusion. Right. Well, with regard to morality, I took a ethics course in college, and it was interesting because somebody made the comment one time about a thief not having a moral framework, and the professor corrected that person to say, actually, that's not true. The the thief had the moral framework of a thief. And uh, so that's the, these people we're talking about in history and, and the present day have more, the moral framework, quote-unquote, of of colonizers of those who believe in a right of domination but they call it other things they pretty it up with other synonyms and like sovereignty or the sovereign and and other types of words that cover the fact that it's a right of domination they're claiming and exercising and so the the part of the challenge is to get deeper into the english language and break it apart in such a way that we can reveal truths that are lying beneath the surface and at a deeper level of the implicit structure, what's implied down below beneath the surface of the, of the cover words, so to speak, or the synonyms or the nicer sounding words for really terrible things, which are called euphemisms. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's a big challenge. And, and I think, you know, I just appreciate you putting me on your show from time to time because it's so important for this information to get out where people can understand it more fully. And, and if we work together at it, we can really get to a, a greater place of, of um, insight. Now, I wanted to mention one other thing, which is that the U.S. government, just so people don't think that this is all in the past, but they have to understand how these ancient doctrines and documents from the past are used by the U.S. government and the present. And so on February 5th of this year, just last month, the U.S. government in the Oak Flat case with regard to the Apache people uh, used Tihetan Indians versus the United States in the legal brief, which traces right to Johnson versus McIntosh, to Henry Wheaton's Elements of International Law, and which deals with the papal bulls and the English charters and so forth. So they're using it. They're using the claim of a right of domination this uh, this year under the Biden administration. And uh, and the, the judge in that case, Judge Logan, who happens to be an African American judge appointed by President Obama, he says that the um, he points out that in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, he said um, that the Mexico ceded the land at issue in this case to the United States by way of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. At that point, the United States took legal title to the land, but no land was ceded. It was the claim of a right of domination that was ceded. And that line, that Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the U.S.-Mexican line traces right back to the line of demarcation issued by the Pope in 1493, Pope Alexander VI, when he created a line of demarcation between Spain and Portugal. And so that line of demarcation between the United States and Mexico and that Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo traces right back to that history. So they're still using it currently. 
and it's unfortunate that we don't have more voices in, in Indian country, so to speak, that uh, are willing to take this on and, and challenge challenge the United States' continued use of the doctrine of Christian discovery and domination against our nations and peoples. Now, I'm going to take a stab in the dark that um, Deb Holland, who has been nominated for the uh, Department of Interior, might take this on and look at this. Um, what would, um, I don't know, I guess, what would happen if indeed she used your positioning uh, to see the doctrine for what it is and how America has assumed priorityship over over that land, sacred sacred flats, and all of the Western Hemisphere, actually? Well, I think a retrospective, generally, is what needs to happen. And if she can be someone to encourage that from within the structure of the U.S. government and the Biden administration, that would be fantastic. Realizing that the um, 198th year, we're in the 198th year since the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling was issued, and February 28th of 2023 will be the 200-year mark since that decision. So we launched uh, through Red RedThought.org, uh, RedThought.org with um, uh, Jody Gowdy, the Yakima Nation, and my friend Peter Dorico and I. We launched this educational campaign to deal with the Johnson ruling and, and push out a lot more awareness of this of this doctrine and this history. And so people can learn more about that by going to redthought.org and or originalfreenations.com, which is uh, our website. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, I, I think she could do a lot in terms of leadership to actually provide a space within the governmental structure to do a retrospective and a thorough examination of, it, of the historical record to see how things have gotten to be where they are today and where decide where we need to go in a more positive basis, you know. But how do we end the end the domination? That's the big question. And where are the domination free zones that people can can uh, find solace or refuge, you know, where they can go? I, I don't know of any such domination free zones. So. You know, I think there's a lot that we can do to think creatively about these issues. Yeah, it's very interesting, that domination free zones. Up for discussion next time we talk, Steve. And uh, thank you for being here um, on First Forces Radio. Steve Newcomb is the author of Pagans in a Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, and released a documentary in 2015, The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code. Directed and produced by yeah. Sheldon Wolfchild. Thank you so much for being here, Steve. Once again, it's an honor. Thank you very much. And I wanted to mention my daughter, Shauna Bluestar, Newcomb's uh, website as well, shaunabluestar.com. Okay. So, okay. Uh, thank you so much. Great. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Bye now. Bye. And this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teoks and Ghost Horse. Thank you for joining us here on uh, this, this radio. I just keep pr pr um, appreciatively saying the name over again. First voices on this land, with this land, for this land, in this land is you fill it out. And from that point on, everything is secondary. Thank you for joining us on Shimalaya Oyate Waniwa Chichuelo. Nishtogeskog, 
Yeah. 